Please be advised this story contains adult content and graphic language. This call is being recorded and may be monitored. Baby, are you sitting down? Yeah. Please don't think any less of me after I tell you this because this is not a good story, okay? But you need to know it. I uh, called Sam and said, let's go down to the theater on the base. And I had my dad's gun fully loaded. And when I took him up into the attic, I shot him two times in the back of the head. It's a horrifying story that drew national media attention, and it grabbed me unlike any other murder case I'd covered as an investigative reporter. It all started in the spring of 2010. Buffett and Wozniak, both community theater actors, were starring in the play Nine. But police say on the same day the couple performed in the play, Wozniak lured his neighbor, 26-year-old college student Sam Hare, who'd recently returned from a tour in Afghanistan, into the theater and shot him. Wozniak allegedly then dismembered the body, the motive for the killing, reportedly to steal Hare's savings account. The night of the murders, Hare's father went to his apartment. He found the body of 23-year-old Julie Kabuishi, a friend and classmate of Hare's. She had also been shot, and there was evidence of a sexual assault. Welcome to Sleuth. I'm Linda Sawyer. It was winter 2015, and I was in Long Beach, California, covering a news story for a TV show called Crime Watch Daily. It was a profile piece on a psychologist whose patients, believe it or not, were some of the most infamous serial killers in the 80s. After my interview with Dr. Vonda Pelto, she invited me to stay for a Christmas gathering at her house that evening. It was Friday, December 4th, and rather than face the L.A. traffic at rush hour, I thought, why not have a little eggnog and some holiday cheer? The guests arrived, and soon the word was out that I was a crime reporter. And when that happens... People inevitably love to tell me some local story or an unsolved mystery. But I couldn't have been less prepared for what I was about to hear from a gentleman who once owned the Liberty Theater, which was located on a local military base in Los Alamitos, California. Dan Wozniak was in some of our Liberty Theater musicals. He was a friend of our daughter, Allison, and definitely someone we trusted. We liked him. Everybody liked him. So I have no idea why he would have killed his friend and dismembered him in in, in the attic of my theater. There were two shows that I did there. One was Charlie's Aunt, and the other one was Arsenic and Old Lace. (laughs) I played uh, Cary Grant's character. So a lot of fun. It was the case of a real-life phantom of the opera. On May 21st, 2010, Daniel Wozniak, a Southern California community theater actor, in between stage performances, killed his friends and chopped up their bodies in the attic of the theater prior to and after his showtime. And his reason? He wanted to drain his victims' bank accounts so he could finance his upcoming honeymoon with his fiancée, Rachel Buffett. Rachel was also an actress 
and a former Disney princess who often played alongside Dan in their musicals. You see, this role was made for you. I don't want to play it anymore. Now you have Look, I have not had a hit like those in years. Of course you have. My last three of the downright flops. Producers aren't exactly knocking down my door. I've lost something, but I don't know what. But I know you can help me find it. Inspiration. I was never your inspiration. That is what you imagined, but it was always you. He would get a lot of roles, do a lot of theater, much more than I ever did. There's a gazillion movies made about the blonde that comes from Oklahoma to be a famous movie star. It's a dime a dozen in L.A., you know? But it was still something I liked to do, so I continued doing it. Listen to Daniel, the actor, speak about his young victims. The two victims were two of my close friends, uh, Sam and Julie. Sam uh, lived in the same complex that me and my fiancé lived at. He had helped me out on several occasions, just he was there for me when, you know, I needed him. And uh, Julie was just a friend in the group, just very, two of the nicest people, two of the nicest people that I've ever known. So wait, he kills them? He talks about how great they were and then he kills them for money? Who is this guy? I had to know more. I was stunned to learn that while the murders took place five years earlier, the trial itself was about to begin that following Monday, December 7th, 2015. Fast forward to 2018, and I haven't left Orange County since. So I started seeking out his high school friends that knew Daniel Wozniak prior to his time with his fiancée, Rachel. It was a time friends tell me that Daniel didn't do drugs, he didn't steal for food, he didn't really do too much of anything that didn't make his parents really proud. Everyone that talked to me about him from his high school years said he's really a totally decent guy. Pre-Rachel, Daniel was often referred to by those that knew him as this happy-go-lucky theater geek. Goofy. He's just this goofy, yeah. friendly guy who, you know, didn't have his act together. You know, I literally, <laughs> I just saw him as this this sweet kid who, um, you know, trying just to make something doing his best. How is this man that I watched in court every day at his murder trial, how is he the same guy that his friends described to me as this fun, generous, kind person that always made them laugh? And those same friends said to me, there's no way they can reconcile it either. That it was their Dan, who was the kind of person that could murder and mutilate friends while not missing a mark on stage. I knew I had to stick around and find the answers. So I moved in and spent time getting to know the various people of interest in this story. I mean, after all, it's these people who are in the know. They had the answers. And like pieces of a very intricate puzzle, I was hoping to connect them all. On January 12, 2016, Daniel Patrick Wozniak was sentenced to death, and today he sits on San Quentin's death row. But my investigation only grew deeper. Why? Because I suspected there were other accomplices that were walking free. Accomplices that the courts knew about, that the police knew existed, and I had to find out why they weren't being charged. I wondered what kind of justice is this for the victim's families? You, Dan, are a coward. My only regret that in this state won't let me kill this coward myself. You took my daughter's 
beautiful, caring, loving daughter's precious life to cover up your highness and planned crime. During the trial, Daniel Wozniak reached out to me on a call from his jail cell. It was during the penalty phase of his trial, and he told me that one of his victims, Julie Kibuishi, was supposed to be killed while he was still performing on stage. So who was supposed to carry out this murder? I had to find out. And after spending time at some pretty shady local haunts, where Daniel and his older brother Tim Wozniak hung out, I found evidence I couldn't ignore. And I just talked to Tim, and I need to make a phone call to the detective now. Why? Because Tim's involved. I need to call the detective first because I need to call him and let him know before they catch me on this recording device because it looks like I'm not trying to tell him right away. Tim says he has evidence with him or, or he knew where it was or something. Then I'm doomed. Tim said that? Yeah. Do you know that Tim had some evidence? Yeah. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God. Okay. Well, this is, this is ridiculous and I have to go tell the detective no, the truth. No, baby, baby, um... Tim, Tim did speak up? Only to me so far. And it was in passing. I said, I'm going to the police station right now. Danny's been arrested. And he's, he starts freaking out. And he was really frantic. And he said something. And something slipped that he had evidence. So I have to... No, I, don't, I was, don't, 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 don't. That can't be found. No, babe, I'm going to do it. All of Daniel's friends tell me he changed ever since she entered his life. And everyone that knew them as a couple say Rachel was in charge, and she called the shots. Yet Daniel was still obsessed to be with Rachel, no matter what. If I was given the opportunity to talk to my fiancé right now, I'd either say, can I be with you out there, or can you be with me in here? Just, I mean, the bond, I just love her. Like, that's, that's the hardest part about getting through my day, is just knowing that I can't be with her, period. It's, you know, it's, it's, it says absence makes the heart grow fonder. It it does. (laughs) It really does. Yet all indications were that Rachel did not return that same love. Not at all. She actually told police early Thursday morning after Daniel's arrest the night before. Now remember, this is just two nights before their wedding was supposed to take place. She told police that Daniel was a lousy lover. And furthermore, he didn't have much to work with down below. What a thing to say about your future husband. He actually fell for me first. And um, at the time, he he had already kind of become my best friend, and I was hanging out with him so often. I wasn't head over heels in love, but I was okay with it. Halfway through the trial, I learned from a source about the existence of a letter written by a notorious Orange County jailhouse informant named Fernando Perez. Perez was housed next to Daniel Wozniak's cell. He said he had a conversation with Daniel, and he wrote about that conversation to Detective Jose Morales, telling him that in this conversation with Daniel, Daniel confided in him, saying that Rachel knew about the plan to murder Sam for his money. And her alleged response to Daniel was, do whatever you have to do to make us happy. So with any good true crime saga, this one has it all. Intrigue, greed, lust, love, jealousy, and of course a sex tape with an old flame who came back into Dan's life for one last fling. 
The story opens with a father's discovery of a dead body in his missing son's apartment. That father is Steve Hare. He's a retired teacher who has a very special relationship with his only son, Sam. What I would do is I would go over Sam's apartment once or twice a week after work. I'd drive over there because it was closer to his place. We would go to the gym and uh, we would work out. After workout, Sam, who was known for his voluminous appetite, we'd go out and get something to eat, and then we'd go back to his place and just kick back and watch some TV. Father-son time. We were best friends, as well as dad and son. And don't forget, once he got out of the Army, he's not a kid anymore. You're able to talk to your child man-to-man, and these were very, very important times, but fun times. So, boy, I could just tell you, Yeah, Sam and I were best buddies. On Sam Hare's return from his three-year military tour in Afghanistan, he decided to move into the Camden Martinique Apartments, a complex right across from the Orange Coast College. Sam enrolled there so he could earn a diploma with the hopes that he would someday become a military officer. The Camden Apartments in Costa Mesa, California, were very much like a dorm, with nearly all of Sam's neighbors enrolled in the college across the street. It was there he met his newest friend, Ruben Minacho, who himself was a former Marine, and the two of them hit it off. Sam told me that he was going to do something that Friday, the night before we went out to dinner. Sam, Julie, and I. and So we went out to dinner. After dinner, we had a great time. He took some fries from me, which I really don't like. <laughs> People take food away out of my plate. <laughs> But, but that was a given to Sam. Yeah, that's he did. He he used to do that just to piss me off too. People would say he would literally order. He would never order an entree. He'd order just like a side of fries, and then would wipe up everybody else's everybody plate. Else's you gonna eat that? Are you gonna finish that? Like before they even thought about being done, it's like you, you, you done with that? Exactly. You know? And and all of a sudden he had a full meal. Exactly. And uh, was he paid for some fries? Yes, that's how he is. After Sam's night out with his friends. He mentioned to Reuben that he promised someone he'd help them with an errand the next afternoon, and Reuben had to remind him that their mutual friend, Dave Barnhard, was hosting a beach barbecue. Sam assured him that he'd make it after he was done. Friday came. We went to the beach. Uh, Dave was having a barbecue with his family, um, a couple of friends, and when I started asking for Sam, nobody knew where he was at. So Sam was invited to this barbecue? He was supposed to be there. Yes, I believe so. I mean, if I was there, then he must have been invited because they never invited me to something without Sam. So, and I did ask the guys about Sam. So they said, oh, I think Dave told me that he was helping out a friend. Even that night we we went out and had some drinks with the guys and Sam was not found. When we were at Camden, I think it was either Jake or Dave that went to knock at his door and then nobody was there. They came back and we said, okay, it was a normal day. You know, Sam is not answering the phone. But that afternoon when he wasn't showing up for the barbecue, you were calling him, you were texting, you were trying Correct. to reach out. Yeah. And at one point, did, did someone answer the phone? Yes. There was another person on the line that answered the phone. And when they answered, it was very windy. As if he was driving a car or standing outside because it was a windy day. But, um... I asked him where I said Sam and he goes yes and I'm like they didn't sound like Sam and I was like where are you 
why do you sound weird? And he goes, oh, no, I'm just having some issues. And he made the mistake to say that he was having issues with his father. So that was a flag to me because Sam has a great relationship with his father and mother. So that immediately gave you pause. Automatically. And I questioned him. When I questioned him more, he hung up. And then I called again. No answer. I texted. No answer. So, and that that's when I got a little bit more worried. And I, I started asking the guys more questions. But since they said, uh, I don't know. So I just let it go. But the idea that, you know, you did kind of press this person and they hung up on you really must have heightened your your concern at that point yes it heightened my concern but since i didn't see it from the other guys it lowered it again while reuben was uneasy over the whereabouts of his friend steve Hare, sam's father was still expecting his son to arrive at their home that weekend it's Friday, May 21st, 2010, when you had an expectation that your son at some point that Friday was going to head up to your and your wife's home in Anaheim Hills. Well, what it was, Raquel had spoken to Sam around 1220 on Friday afternoon. That was the afternoon of the 21st. And they had mentioned Raquel wanted to speak to him. And he said, Mom, I'm busy. I'm helping somebody. And, but we were anticipating Sam to come over for the weekend. However, knowing Sam, I prob- I was not expecting him really until Saturday. And look, Sam was in a war zone. He was a decorated combat veteran. He was in a war zone. He would call every two or three months when he got off uh, the hill, his observation posts and what have you. So I'm I, certainly not really overly concerned saying, I wonder where he is. I wish he'd drop me a line, let us know if he's coming or not. By Saturday early evening, there's still no word from Sam. So Steve decides it's time to get in his car and drive down to Sam's place in Costa Mesa. I had a key to his place, so that wasn't an issue. So I arrived there approximately 9 o'clock, and I knocked at the door. There was no response. I said, okay, I've got the key. And I let myself in. I opened the door, turned on the lights. The living room was fine. Everything looked very neat in place, peeked into the bedroom. Costa Mesa 911, what's going on, sir? There's a body in my son's apartment. There's a what? Once I went into the apartment and then I saw the body, that's when my whole world changed. A body, a dead body. A dead body? Are you sure, sir? I can take you still. Does your son know who it is? Okay. okay, we're sending people, sir. I've got someone on the way, okay? I'm just going to get information from you, all right? On Friday, May 21st, 2010, Julie Kibuishi, Sam's close friend and tutor, also went missing. Julie's friends were texting her frantically. It was text after text coming in her phone. Hey, Julie, your mom called. Can you call me, please? Is everything Okay. By the next day, Julie's mom was desperate. This kind of thing never happened to my daughter, so we called the police. And I said, I don't care. I don't care where you find her, but I need to find her. It's Costa Mesa detective Michael Cohen who arrives at the crime scene. As we walked in, you know, the kitchen looked clean. Everything looked very clean inside until we went into the bedroom. There's a party in my son's apartment. Is it a female or a male? Once we were in the bedroom, we had seen a a lone female slumped over the bed that appeared to have a a gunshot wound to the back of her head. 
initially we saw blood and it appeared to us that it looked like some type of either blood force object had hit her or it could have been a gunshot wound. We weren't sure initially at first from our initial investigation until we found out more later. She was bent over the bed, uh, actually with her knees partially on the ground. Her torso was slumped over on top of the bed, almost like in a kneeling position. Her pants were somewhat ripped and uh, pulled down. It appeared to us like maybe there was a sexual assault that had gone bad. Yes, yes. She's in the bedroom. She's like from sexual activity. She's dead. There's blood from her head. The 911 call was from Sam, her father, and he was looking for his son also. So we felt that Sam was on the run and had maybe had some involvement with this homicide. For June and Masa Kibuishi, they both feared that fateful knock at their door. It's any parent's worst nightmare, and it was Detective Michael Cohen's job to deliver the news. My partner and I, when we had to make the death notification to the Kibayashi family, uh, it was tough because we had a young girl who was 23 years old, and now we had to make contact with her parents. Uh, my partner and I drove over to Mr. and Mrs. Kuviashi's home, knocked on the door, and made contact with her and her husband. Once we walked in, they had us sit down on a couch, which I remember still to this day. They sat down. I then proceeded to tell Mr. and Mrs. Kuviashi that we had located their daughter at an apartment complex in Costa Mesa and that she had been basically murdered. When I made that statement to Mr. and Mrs. Kubayashi, uh, Mrs. Kubayashi basically just broke down and started crying. Her husband tried to calm her down and we, we tried to calm her down, which we finally were able to after a few minutes. And uh, it was just a very tough situation when you see the parents become so emotional and uh, as detectives and not only as detectives but as fathers of having our own children you start thinking about how you would react to that type of situation julie was loved by everyone who knew her she was a talented dancer and a budding fashion maven and she was also really smart which is why sam's parents said Julie would help Sam often with his studies as his tutor. She looked up to him, and she was very good at tutoring him in anthropology, and he got an A in that class. And I said, Sam, is there anything going on with you and Julie? And he says, absolutely not, Dad. She's like my kid's sister. Steve realized that he knew very little about Sam's friends at the Camden Apartments, but he was certainly determined to find out more and to find his son. Okay, I got the list of names by calling those few numbers that I had on my phone of Sam's friends. The first two I called were Ruben Minacho and Dave Barnhart. I spoke to, uh, eventually, Dan Wozniak. I, I spoke to a number of people, and each one of those people were telling me, well, when the last time they saw Sam, what did they hear, what do they know? And I took it from there, and I, I called for a few hours, speaking to people, and then I got a few hours sleep and then on Sunday was this was Saturday evening Saturday night Sunday morning when this was all occurring got a few hours sleep awoke and then was out searching again 
Steve had a feeling that finding Julie's body in Sam's apartment, combined with Sam's military background and his knowledge of handling guns, would certainly make Sam a person of interest for the authorities. But the other news Steve was about to tell police would leave little doubt for them that Sam was their reasonable prime suspect and could very easily be on the run. We put a, a all-points bulletin out for him because we thought, uh, you know, right now he's our lone suspect. There's nobody else that we should be looking for other than him because we can't find him. And his father's trying to call him and answering his phone. So we felt at that point in time he was the initial suspect of interest and we need to find him. The situation at hand warrants you got to speak to the police, what have you. Fill them in on what you know. So they took me down to the station and took me to an interview room. And of course, your whole world is crashing around you. And then they started questioning. Common sense says there's a dead body in your child's apartment and your child is not there. The first thing I thought, they're going to suspect him. Understandably so. So as they were questioning me, I said, look, uh, before you find out, I'll let you know he was involved before. When I say involved, he was charged with a murder. So I let them know that there was a situation that wouldn't look good for him. But I also emphasized that he wouldn't do that. And it goes back to I knew he would not harm a woman. One name on Steve's list of Sam's buddies gave Steve his first warning sign. It, it didn't seem right. He changed his story a little bit. And then I asked him, hey, you know, have you seen Sam? How was his disposition? And, and Dan Wozniak said, well, I was nervous. But he said, no, Sam was even nervous. He was upset. And I said, really? Like what? And Dan Mosniak said, Sam told me he had girl problems and he had family problems. If you want to see red flags, lightning bolts, shooting cannons firing off. And Monday night, I went through the list with Raquel and we looked. And since everything was being purchased from Long Beach, we looked at the list. And on that list of about 15, there was one prefix with a Long Beach prefix on there. Of all the cell phones on that list. all the cell phones I had. The, the only prefix with Long Beach belonged to Dan Wozniak. Steve was always very cooperative and had given us information as to when it was being taken out, what banks they were being taken out. So he was very credible. In fact... Steve mentions that he can recall you saying to your partner on the way out, gee, maybe we do have the wrong guy. I think that gave him some level of hope, at which yes. point you guys went out and got some warrants, right, for some bank statements. and Yeah. And on those bank statements were purchases from Echo's Pizza in Long Beach that were being made by whomever had possession of Sam's card at the time. That was kind of the breaking of the case, I would say. Um, and I think a lot of the other guys would say the same because we were able to track where the pizza was being delivered. Uh, we actually eventually raided that house and was able to talk to a young kid. And I don't remember his name. Um, Wesley Freilich. Yes, he mentioned, he definitely said that uh, Daniel Wozniak gave him the card. From what I recall, I guess they had an agreement with each other to go. Wesley was going to get money out and give him the money. and uh, But Wesley really had no clue as to what was going on. That All he knew that he was going to get a little something out of it from Dan Wozniak, and that was it. Yeah, he, he, got, he got something all right. As I look closer at those bank records, I realized that he, in fact, 
took $400 out over the weekend himself, even though he told Dan, I couldn't get to it on Saturday, I couldn't get to it on yeah. Sunday. So, uh, yeah, there's there, there, there was more to his story, but, you know, he was young and and naive, I guess, enough to think that he could get away with what he did, so... You know, he's not as innocent as people think he is, but at you, the time, you guys needed no... him, right? You needed him for the uh, for the trial. Yes, yes, we needed him. So, and he was, you know, he cooperated with us, and it worked out really well for us. So, it, uh, having him as a uh, a witness on the stand. And how did Dan get Sam's PIN number to give to Wesley for the ATM withdrawals? Well, earlier that week of the murders, Dan and Rachel faced yet another eviction. And Sam offered to help with the rent, so he brought Dan to his bank ATM. It was there, Dan focused in and watched while Sam entered his pin. Um, when Sam helped me pay for the rent, I got a glance at his uh, bank account and saw the total, uh-huh. and I saw him punching his pin number. At this point in the investigation, Dan Wozniak was still only a suspect that police believed was helping Sam still on the run. But the police wanted to bring him in for questioning because Dan was their best lead at the time. And I believe it was Jose that called him to say, we'd like you to come in and talk at Ed's directive. And I think Daniel told Jose, well, he's heading off to Tsunami Sushi over in Huntington Beach because it was his bachelor party, right? Yes, that was his bachelor party at the sushi place. Just having a great old time over there. That's where we contacted him. A little bit more than contacted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we um, actually, you know, we located him there. I initially went inside the bar, just kind of plain clothes, walked around. I saw him sitting right in the back of a kind of like a banquet room as he's in there enjoying life and having fun you know i get on the radio and i finally call i think at the time it was ed everett I believe um it was keith davis which was one of our other um sergeants or lieutenants at the time and they uh ended up coming in the back door making contact with him and arresting him right there at his bachelor party police escort dan back to the station where they hope to unravel the mystery of where sam is still hiding At this point, they want to learn what role, if any, Dan Wozniak has played in Sam's disappearance. And that's when Dan's story was first tested. I told him the door it was Sam. I'm like, hey, Dan, what's going on? Everything good? He's like, not good. I did something bad. What did you do? It's like, there's a dead body in my apartment. I shot somebody. It was a fit of rage. Tell us the truth. You're not that good of an actor. This is your chance to clear the air. We both... You know, after we took a little break, my partner and I are looking at each other and going, wow, this, you know, this guy, he thinks he's acting in front of us, you know, with this story. And same with her when we interviewed her, uh, when Detective Morales interviewed her. And when I actually did the uh, voice stress analyzer test on her, she, you know, she just trying to be utilizing their acting persona on us. And it was terrible. It really was. They were pretty inseparable. They were always together. I don't know how she could not have known what was going on. You know, we can't use it in court. I did a voice, what we call a voice test analyzer. It's kind of like a lie detector test, and she failed it. She uh, failed all three of them, from what I understand. Yes. Yeah, I had to, initially, I did the first test. I couldn't get any good 
viable graph from her comments because it's just yes and no answers because she was trying to disguise her voice, you know. So then I had to do it again. And by the time, third time, I think I finally got some decent patterns. The patterns show that she was, uh, she's not truthful. I'm a big advocate of that machine, you know, I was trained on it. It gives me a lot of investigative tools to go further. And so when I got all that information, I was able to tell Detective that, hey, you know, she's not telling the truth. At this point in Detective Cohen's interview, he tells Daniel that he wants a sample of his DNA. And Dan's reaction reveals quite a lot to the detective. I guess what, for not to eliminate you? It's uh, in your best interest? Yes, most uh, definitely, sir. So basically, something you want for? I remember very specifically when I asked him to do a DNA sample and I pulled out the little kit. He just sat back up in his chair and you could tell his wheels were spinning. And next thing you know, he's like, well, you know, I, I've been in Sam's apartment before and you might find my DNA in the bathroom and you might find it over here. And he starts telling me all these places you might now find it. So I knew at that point in time he was lying. You know, he's not telling the truth. Now, I was in Sam's apartment Friday afternoon. Okay. Dan's next version of events, where Sam is the suspect on the run, leads Dan into making a critical error, and he totally loses his cool. Okay, fine. You know what? He didn't come down. He came down and said, help me. I went upstairs, and yes, I saw the goddamn body. Is that what you want to hear? No. We want to hear the truth. <sighs> that is the truth. Okay. Then tell us what happened. How did that, how did that play out? So how did your DNA get on her? That I don't know. DNA doesn't just fall off. I don't know. I didn't touch her. I didn't do anything. What did you see? I saw two gunshots in her head. And that was Dan Wozniak's undoing. He thought he was the smartest guy in the room. He thought he could outwit and act his way out of a situation he found himself in. But this wasn't a play. This was no joke. This was a murder investigation. And these detectives were narrowing in on his blunders. Lieutenant Ed Everett was in the room with Dan at the time and describes what he felt was the break in their case. Because when we were in the apartment and we all looked in, it was only one visible to to our eyes. And then when he had mentioned he saw two gunshot wounds, I said, well, he was there when she was shot. He was there when she was killed. And we all kind of simultaneously, when we were in that interview, when he said two, my partner and I, we kind of looked at each other. And then that's when Lieutenant Everett said the two shots thing. You could see Wozniak's face, you know, like, uh-oh, I guess my acting job just went down the toilet. And and because, as you said earlier, you couldn't tell on the scene if there were two wounds to Julie's head. You couldn't. You could not. And uh, there's no way you could have. You know, there's too much excess blood that's intermingled within the hair and, and even if you try to move the hair around you're not going to be able to tell there was two it looks like just one blood spot until the body goes to the coroner's office and actually an autopsy is performed you're not going to know at the time I don't even think that from what I recall the, the coroner didn't even make a determination as to anything until the autopsy came back officially for Wozniak to say two shots we knew right then and there that he was totally in Involved and now we've got him. You just told us you saw two bullet wounds. You were no, standing no, on no, 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 okay. Whoa, 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 okay. stop. Exactly what you, seen, you can't even keep your lies straight. 
His story kept changing. I think he thought that his acting ability was going to carry him through this, this performance, so to speak, and it wasn't doing it. Dan is ushered back to a holding cell in the jail. There, Dan has access to a phone. As the pressure mounts, he really needs to talk to his fiance. It ends up being the call that will take down the curtain for Dan's last performance. Listen to me. No. No. What? Trust me. Please? You realize they're recording this phone conversation anyways. You're being an absolute ass to try and lie again. Yeah, I, I am. Because there's stuff in there that simply means something else. With Sam. Something bad. And I think you um, You're talking about the credit card scheme? They already no, know all about it. No, no, it's more than that. They, what I'm saying is they, they can't find that. They can't. I know, but... Well, I don't know what that is. I thought it was a murder weapon. I don't know what you're talking about, other evidence. I don't know what Tim has besides that. Tim said he had a murder weapon. Yeah, he does. So that's exactly what Tim told me, so I'm going to go tell the detective now. So, okay. what do you want me to do? Then I don't want you to tell the detective anything, and I don't want Tim involved like that. I mean, now I'm, now I'm dead. Now I'm really dead. Baby, you're already dead. You said you wanted to talk to me. What's going on? I'm crazy, and I did it. You did what? I killed Julie, and I killed Sam. Okay. Uh, tell me how you uh, you killed Sam. In two shots, using oh. my father's gun that I had. And your motive behind uh, uh, killing Sam was? Money and insanity. Money and insanity. Okay. <laughs> tell me about... Uh, uh, the Sam incident and what you did. I told him that I needed to move some stuff from the theater. I said, you need to bend down and help me lift this thing up. And when he bent down, I grabbed the gun. I never really fired the gun before, so I pulled it back and I shot him. Okay. Is there anything that you said to Julie prior to shooting her? No, I didn't. I had, um, I got her in. I was downstairs in my apartment. I was still text messaging. That was Sam's phone you were using? Yes. Okay. What, what sort of text messaging were you doing back before? I was saying, you need to come over tonight. You need to come over tonight. What, what did you say to Julie? What? Julie was wearing like a crown tiara. She had just come from her brother's. I had said, like, um, Sam just called me and he was going through some stuff. She said, yeah, me too. I said, well, I have a key. Let's go in. I opened the door. I let us in. I just went to the bathroom real quick because I was really nervous. I loaded the gun again. And? went back out into the hallway and then said, oh, by the way, did you see this in Sam's bed? And I said, read, lean over, look at it right there. And when she was leaning over, I put two bullets in the back of her head. Okay. When did you feel you had to, to kill uh, Julie? What was the rationale behind that? I was going crazy. No, but seriously. Seriously, to cover up Sam. And so I Well, why, how would that cover up Sam? To make it look like he was on the run and he did. He was the one that did it. Right. Why on earth would you try and cover for him? Because we needed the money. No, we never need money. We need to be good people and just have each other. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. On that call, you hear Rachel lecturing Dan on being good people. Meanwhile, Rachel knew Dan kept a sex tape of a former girlfriend in their apartment safe. She found that tape, which was located right next to Dan's father's gun. Rachel confronted Dan, 
and he told her he filmed it with the purposes of planning to extort money from his ex-girlfriend and her family. Rachel actually told police this explanation of the sex tape the night Dan was arrested after his bachelor party, as if it was matter of fact, because that was part and parcel with her lifestyle with Dan. It was that lifestyle that we now know included stealing, lying, cheating, and conning people out of money. So the idea that she's telling him we have to be good people and we don't need money? Because Rachel knows the police are recording her. She knows about the sex tape. It was in the apartment. She knows what Dan planned to do with it. And she seemed to have no problem with it. I was able to get some calls that were made that happened between Dan and Rachel, and he seems to be sort of taking her through the murders just so that she's up to speed on the details of how much he's told you guys. Did you feel that way when you listened to the call? She knows a lot more than she's saying. I think he's telling her piece by piece each detail as to what's going on. And I don't know if he's doing that to protect her, to make it look like he's the only one involved. Again, in my opinion, I know she knows a lot more. There's no doubt in my mind that she probably knows every detail. This call is being recorded and maybe monitored. Baby, are you sitting down? Yeah. Please don't think any less of me after I tell you this, because this is not a good story, okay? But you need to know I uh, called Pam and said, let's go down to the theater on the base, and I had my dad's gun fully loaded, and when I took him up into the attic, I shot him two times in the back of the head. And Rachel continues to profess her innocence to the media as yet another victim of Daniel Wozniak. After I'm finding all this out, I'm starting to question if I've ever known him. I absolutely feel like I was duped by Dan. Rachel says she was duped by Dan, But let's start with the Fernando Perez letter, where he writes that Rachel's response to Dan when he tells her of the plan to kill Sam for their honeymoon money is to do whatever you have to do to make us happy, Dan. Rachel claims that Dan hid their debt from her, but based on former friends of Rachel's, they all agree she was completely aware of their financial status. Sources shared with me that Rachel and Dan stole nearly on a daily basis. A bridesmaid of Rachel's said Rachel stole their bridesmaid's dresses for the wedding. Rachel and Dan stole furniture for their apartment along with food and alcohol. Chris Williams said on the day Sam was murdered, when Dan and Sam left the apartment, he stayed back with Rachel and she got on Craigslist looking for stripper jobs and nude model jobs. Why would Rachel do this if she thought they had money? Neither Dan nor Rachel held a steady job, so I'm not sure where Rachel thought the money was coming from. She said she didn't realize that Dan was a prolific liar, but Rachel told police that he was an absolute pathological liar. So it's all Rachel's lies and inconsistencies that serve as the blueprint to the truth in this case. 
And and you're absolutely right about Rachel Buffett. How could you not know, you know, your accounts are overdrawn, you're in the red, you're constantly borrowing money from everybody, and all of a sudden, your husband-to-be comes up with money from somewhere. It's not from working hard as a uh, starving actor. It's like he's got four or five hundred bucks in his pocket all of a sudden. Where'd that come from? In an effort to clear her name, Rachel appears on the Dr. Phil show and is confronted by Steve Hare. Because of how much these people are hurting and they think that I had anything to do with that, it's bringing up a lot of pain for me. Do you believe she belongs in prison? Yes, I do. You're lying and you're covering it up. My son and his friend, his tutor, they're both dead. He was cut up into pieces and you to come on here and, and go on the TV stations, poor me. That offends me. And how does Steve Hare feel about Rachel Buffett's claims of innocence? There's 50, 100 different times you've, you lie to the police. You came out and lied outright. So just know, you're going to have to live with this. You're going to have to live through social media now. Is that every time your name comes up, you're going to be associated with a murder. And more importantly, is that you lied about it. That says volumes about you. Hey, baby. Baby, where are you? I'm here still. They won't let me see you, though, because you already told them. No, no, no. Um, what was going on in your mind when you were uh, uh, dismembering the body, dismembering Sam's body? I was actually smiling and laughing. Okay. Why do you think you were doing that? I don't know. I just could, it reached a point to where I couldn't even believe what I was doing this. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. And the heartbreak for Steve Hare continues. The police called to Steve before you find out from the TV. Uh, we have to tell you that Sam was dismembered. That's when I lost it. That's when I lost it. They were looking for body parts at a park. That was Friday, Saturday, May 29th was Sam's birthday. And I'll never forget that uh, on my son's birthday, I was praying that they would find his head. This was a boy, a man, who had on a tattoo on his chest, huge tattoo on his chest of flowers and hearts with mom and dad in the middle of it. That's how they identified my son's body, because he didn't have a head and he did have some arms. What Daniel Wozniak did to that body, the way he left him there with just no regard for human life was so disgraceful. And I swore that I was going to promise Sam that I wasn't going to stop until I found out what happened to him. Over the next 10 episodes of Sleuth, we will discover whether Dan Wozniak committed these murders on his own. We'll hear from countless witnesses and reveal more evidence that points to others who may have helped Dan Wozniak plan and execute the murders of our victims Sam Hare and Julie Kibuishi. We'll learn of possible accomplices that authorities decided either to ignore or chose to overlook because they needed their testimony in the prosecution of Daniel Wozniak's death penalty case. There's no statute in homicide, so... You know, even though we have one guy in prison right now on death row, there's still plenty more room for others to follow. And so this odyssey that I've been on for the last two years has really been not only about answering the questions for me on a personal level, but more importantly, helping these victims' families, helping them understand what really happened to their loved ones. That hoping that the rest of the people involved 
are found guilty of the crimes they committed as well. Because it wasn't just Daniel Wozniak. It just wasn't. There's no doubt in my mind. She might be the mastermind of this whole thing. And Dan's just taking the hit on his own. Baby, are you sure you're not making this up because you're under pressure? No. It's the honest to God truth. It's the only time I can be truthful. And now all I want to do is die because my life is over. Why, baby? Because I don't want to live. No, I mean, why? Was it that bad? What? Was it really that bad? Yeah! Why was it that so bad not having some money? Because I couldn't provide for you! <laughs> Next week on Sleuth, victim Sam Hare's father, Steve Hare, returns to share the details regarding the three felony counts Dan Wozniak's ex-fiancee, Rachel Buffett, faces in her upcoming trial for accessory after the fact. To date, prosecutor Matt Murphy has only been willing to charge Buffett with the lesser crime of accessory, as he suggests he can only prove she aided in covering up the murders. Yet his own police, who investigated the case, feel Buffett, the former Disney princess, should have been charged with murder. Matt Murphy has offered Rachel a deal to plead guilty to a misdemeanor with no jail time. And in one year, he says, the entire charge will be dismissed. But Rachel has turned down the offer because she says she wants her day in court. Next week, hear what Steve and I learned in our investigation and decide for yourselves Rachel's role in the murders. If you enjoyed this episode of Sleuth, share it with a friend, and be sure to leave a rating or review. Follow Sleuth on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so that you never miss an episode.